When I was growing up, we had a kid in our neighborhood. His name was Brent. Brent was special, meaning he was nerdy. A little bit smaller than everyone else, a little bit weird, a little bit awkward. Everybody picked on Brent, except me. I would have picked on Brent, but my mom dealt with a lot of stuff, and one thing she didn't deal with was bullying. She ever found out we were messing with Brent, she'd light you up. So, man, I went through my whole life never picking on Brent. But the other side of that coin is this. I never picked on him, but I never stopped anyone else from picking on him. I never came to his defense. I never took up for him. I sat back and watched people do stuff, and I'd laugh and chuckle. But I'd always tell myself, man, I didn't do anything. Mom can't get on to me. And I remember this one time, my mom comes home, and she says, guess who's trying out for football this year? I said, who? She said, Brent. I started laughing. I said, Brent is going out for football. Now, you need to understand, I was raised in Decula, Georgia. At that time, Decula was a very, very small town. And we had a very, very, very good football team. Matter of fact, football, literally, we had one stoplight in the town and one restaurant at Dairy Queen. Literally, on Thursday morning, you would show up to school. Football games were on Friday. You would show up to school on Thursday, and people already had their blankets out in the bleachers reserving their seats, because if you didn't, you wouldn't get a seat on Friday, because there was nothing to do in Decula, Georgia. The closest thing to us to do was 40 minutes away, and that was Gwinnett Place Mall at that time. So football was a big deal. And if you played football and went out for football, man, they took it serious because they had no life in that town. And so the fact that Brent was coming out for football just kind of made me chuckle. And I thought to myself, they're going to destroy him in practice. Everybody is going to tee off on this kid. Everyone's going to make fun of him. And they're going to throw him in the locker and throw baby powder through the locker on him. And man, they're going to do all the stuff you do when you're a jerk high school kid. And I said, I don't want any, I remember thinking, I don't want anybody to know I live two houses down from Brent. So I just acted like I didn't know him first practice. I mean, knew him like everybody else knew him, but didn't really acknowledge him. Until after practice, I'm still in ninth grade, I'm not old enough to drive. My mom pulls up to get me. And all of a sudden, Brent's getting in my car. So what are you doing? Your mom's driving me home. Oh. We get home. I asked my mom, I said, well, what's up with Brent being in the car? She said, Gary, I have to come get you from practice every single night. I work, and his, mom's work, his mom works. So we're going to carpool, and we're going to rotate nights coming to get you. I said, so you're telling me tomorrow, and Brent, as odd as he was, his mom was just that odd too. She was, I mean, sweet little lady. I remember she was as wide as she was tall and had these big Coke bottle glasses. She just always had food on her face. She was just weird, you know. Oh, I thought she was worth the time. Now I'm kind of that guy. I always got food on my face and as wide as I am tall. But, and I said, no, that's not happening. Told my mom that. That went over like screen doors on a submarine. I could see my mom start to get mad. My mom gets mad 
like I get mad. So when I get mad, my jaw tightens and my lips, and for some reason I cock my head, and that's what my mom does. I knew the look. And I knew mom was about to light me up. But surprisingly, she came very calm. She said, you have a problem with Brent? They got to remember, little nerdy Brent, I had literally grown up around him my whole life. My mom didn't put up a bullying. I wanted to state my case to my mom about Brent. I wanted her to understand, hey, football is a big deal. I'm on the football team. I played football, blah, blah, blah. I got to keep this, you know, got to keep this status in high school. That's really cool. And, um, and Brent hinders that. That's what's going through my mind anyway. I went to state my case, and don't you hate when someone asks you a question and they really don't want to answer? So before I could answer my mom, she said, do you have a problem with Brent? And I went to answer, and she said, before you answer, let me ask you a question. Remember, I'm 14 at the time, 15 at the time. She says, I remember it. I, I remember every word of the question. She said, what makes Brent so unlovable that he doesn't deserve the same respect every other kid does? Brent had never done anything to me. He'd never said a crossword to me. Matter of fact, growing up when we were kids... He was great because he would always lose at all the games, which means I won at all the games, like hide-and-go-seek or war. I was always the good guy, and he was all, I always beat him, and he just went along with it. You know, he'd never done anything to me. And she said, what makes him so unlovable that he doesn't deserve the same respect every other kid gets? And probably for the first and one of the only times in my life, if you know me, I had no answer. I remember just standing there before my mom, and I did not have an answer. And I remember listening to her, and one word going through my mind over and over again. The word un. Lovable. I don't know if before that time I had ever heard that word before, but it's just one of those things that kind of changed my life. What made this kid so unlovable? Because he didn't look like me or act like me or had the same interests as me or speak like me or dress like me or whatever it was. What made this kid so unlovable? And I remember that phrase, literally, I don't say this in an exaggerating way, it literally changed my life. I hit high school a little bit later in high school and kind of became hell on wheels. And it's funny, I look back now and then, I became that unlovable kid. My high school voted me most likely to end up in prison. I was the person nobody wanted anything to do with. You know, I went from, you know, 
you go back, you look back at some of your pictures from high school and you think of what an idiot you were. Like I went from jock in ninth grade to in junior, I don't know, like I know people like my wife won't remember this because they're too young, but back then you would get a black leather jacket. You'd get a blue jean jacket and cut the sleeves off of the blue jean jacket. You'd put it over your black leather jacket and then you'd go find, this is back in the day when they had rock band t-shirts and they were cool, you know, and you'd cut off the front of your shirt. Maybe y'all didn't do this here in Cherokee County. We did this in Gwinnett County because that's how we rolled. And you'd pin it to the back of your blue jean jacket so you'd have Metallica, you know. And then I wanted my hair to grow all out long, but here's the problem. I got curly hair, so it doesn't grow down, it grows out, you know. And don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about about the blue jean jacket either because you do. So I wanted a rat tail, but it wouldn't grow into a rat tail, so I had a pig tail because it was all curly. Yeah, I was awesome. And then I wanted to pierce my ear. My mom wouldn't let me, so I stuck a stapler through it, and I had a pierced ear. I was awesome. Hey, you better recognize. But I became that unlovable kid. Like I said, I grew up in a very small town, and I went from being with everyone else who was the same to being the unlovable kid that everybody was kind of afraid of. It's amazing. I still, not as much now because everybody's on Facebook, but in the early days of Facebook, I'd get messages from people and be like, you're still alive? You're a pastor? Like, what happened to you? I never thought you would be that person. I became that unlovable kid. I just wasn't a likable person like I am now. And I think because of that and those words, for whatever reason, I feel like I've given my life to those that society deems unlovable. I've always told people that we have a very odd church. It's a mix of people. And what they always have in common, though, is for whatever reason, by society, they felt unlovable. It's always a weird church that you have a biker crowd in there, or you have a homosexual crowd in there, whatever, a homeless crowd in there, and they all feel comfortable together. What they all have in common is, in a lot of places, they feel like outcasts. They feel unlovable. And here, for whatever reason, they feel accepted and they feel loved. In almost my entire ministry, I've just had that niche of connecting with those that were unlovable. I've given my life to those that are unlovable. I like that new Brantley Gilbert song that comes out, and he says, those who don't trust anybody, trust me. That's just kind of been my path. I don't do very much right as a pastor. I'm not a great pastor. If you want counseling, I'm not the person to come to. You want someone to come pray with you, I'm probably not the person to come to. <laughs> if you've ever been in the hospital and I have visited you in the hospital, I'm not the type of pastor you want to visit you in the hospital. I'm a germaphobe. I don't want to touch anything. You're freaking me out. You're coughing. I'm trying to be cool and calm, and I got my hands in my pocket. Well, yeah, you're good, you know. And then I get real awkward, and Christian's like, I thought you just went to see so-and-so in the hospital. I said, I did. She goes, you just got there two minutes ago, and you're in the car? I went there and let them know I was praying with them. I left. She's like, did you pray with them? I said, no, that means I had to touch them. I just let them know I'm praying for you. I love you. If you need anything, call me. Hoping they don't ever call. Like, I call, they call me. I don't ever give my phone number. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm not a good pastor. I accept it. But I'm really good 
at loving unlovable people. I'm really good, for whatever reason, of the biggest jerk out there, the biggest a-hole out there, always making a connection with them in some way. To the point that they let you marry their daughter. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just being slow today. Just being slow. I'm just kidding. As Christ followers... It's our job to love the unlovable. I dare say, if you had to list out the top three or four characteristics of being a true Christ follower, loving the unlovable would be at the top of the list. I think the church has moved away from that. We judge people's walk with God based on how many Bible verses they know or how often they pray or how often they're in church or where they serve. We base it on works. Well, they do this, this, and this, and they got this merit badge and that badge. And, this, and really, it just boils down to some simple things. And throughout this series, we're going to be talking about those things. We're going to be talking about how to love the unlovable. We're going to talk about what Jesus did, how to forgive those that hurt you. We're going to talk about how we have a responsibility to help those that are going through hard times, those that are to help the downtrodden. It's going to be a fun series, and it's going to be real, real simple because we're just going to get back to the life of Jesus. I think that it's funny. So many times we've moved away from what Jesus taught. I believe with everything in me, this is the Word of God. But I believe if you're going to model your life after someone in this book, you can't do any better than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where they lay out the life of Jesus. I love Paul. I appreciate Paul. I think Paul was inspired of God to write most New Testament. But Paul's not Jesus. And as Christ followers, that means we follow in the teachings of Christ. We follow in the example of Christ. And here's the problem with that. Every social group out there loves to point out what Jesus would do. The conservative group justifies their belief on Jesus. The liberal group justifies their belief on Jesus. The racist, I mean the Klan, bases their racism on what they believe are the teachings of Jesus. Their blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. But when you really get down to it, who was Jesus and what was Jesus about? I think one of the first things you'll notice as you study the life of Christ that you cannot get away from. The Son of God came to earth. He lived a sinless life. He lived a perfect life. He lived a life of, per of perfection. He was holiness in human form. <laughs> Yet he was called a friend of sinners. He who was without sin gave his life for those of us full of sin. He didn't come to earth and hang out with the religious. He didn't come and hang out with the already convinced. 
He didn't come and hang out with those who had it all together. The Bible says over and over and over, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He hung out with the lowest of the low, the drudges of society. And here's what amazes me about him. Not only did he hang out with them, they were drawn to him. There was something about when he walked into a room that drew those to him. I wonder how many of us in our Christian walk walk into a room and those that don't know God are drawn to us or instead they're repulsed by us because they know we're going to judge them. We're going to look down on them. We're going to shove our views down their throat. And they're really just repulsed by us instead of drawn to us. Here's something else I find really interesting about Jesus. He never became like the people he was reaching to reach him. Mm. He was holiness. He was perfection. He was the son of God in human form. And the Bible says over and over and over and over again, multitudes of people were drawn to him. Everywhere he went, there was crowds of people. They, they said he would have to fight through the crowds just to go to the next town because there was something about Jesus that drew people. And I believe with everything that is in me today, it was the fact that when they saw Jesus, they knew there was somebody who loved them. He knew he might not approve of their lifestyle, he might not approve of their decisions, but he loved those people. See, we live in a day and time where we think accepting is approving. It's not my job to approve or disapprove. It's my job to love. And if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, I don't care if it's Easter Sunday and there's not a seat available. I don't care if it's the last Sunday of spring break, the week after Easter, and there's five people here. If we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, we have got to be a church that does whatever it takes to love the unlovable. Because we have a world who wants to be loved. The church has this problem. We want to tell everyone what we know instead of telling everyone we care. They don't care what you know do they know that you care. See, the church has got this huge problem. We want to clean a fish before we catch it. You can be part of us if you look like us and act like us and dress like us and smell like us and get your hair cut like us. I'll never forget when I gave my life to Christ. I gave my life to Christ in an independent, fundamental, King James only, pre-millennial, whoa, God, Bible, Baptist church. I mean, the preacher was a five-foot-nothing Cherokee Indian. He'd hit the stage and take your mouth! And I, I, you've heard me say, he'd start on this, and he'd just freaking mow you down. I'll never forget sitting in the church service one time. And this guy, and this is old school, boy. They used to call people down and, man, they pray over them. Like, it got to the point where like, someone was coming down and we wasn't going to quit singing at the end of the service. Like, there was times you'd be looking at a person, who's taking the one for the team today? Somebody's got to go down and we're going to keep on because he ain't stopping. But I remember this guy came down one time and, man, you could tell the guy didn't have anything. And you could tell he was down on his luck and, Man, he had hair down to about right here. And man, he had a beard. This was back before beards were cool. And he was just a rough dude. I remember in the service, he came down. I guess the Holy Spirit of God was convicting him. And he came down. And the preacher came down. He talked to him and got up. And the preacher got up. And he said, This is so and so. I don't remember the guy's name. He said, This is so and so. 
and he gave his life to Christ today. And everybody's like, yeah, he gave his life to Christ. That's awesome. He's made a decision to change his life. And this is when things begin to change for me. And then the preacher said, and we'll know if he was serious when he shows up next week and his hair's cut. And I was sitting there like, oh. That's the sign of being a Christian. I thought Jesus had long hair. You know, and wore flip-flops. I mean, like that, that's the sign of being a Christian. And I remember this. I remember looking at that guy and seeing embarrassment on his face. And despair on his face. And almost a hopelessness on his face. Because he'd come into a place that he thought would care about him and love him at the church. Instead, the preacher brought him. And I don't know the preacher was a, I don't think he was a bad guy. I don't think he was trying to embarrass the guy. But he embarrassed that guy. And I never saw that guy in church again. Because he didn't look like the preacher thought he ought to look. I am convinced that the toughest teachings of Jesus... I've read from this verse a thousand times at this church, and I'll read from it a thousand more times because at the end of the day, it's one of the most important verses in the Bible. We started our church based on this verse. The Bible says in Mark 12, 31, love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to understand the context here. The Pharisees, the religious people, they'd come to Jesus. They were trying to trip and they'd say, hey, which one's the most important commandment? There's a lot of commandments out there. Which one's the most important? And Jesus threw a, he said, hey, the most important is love Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. We sung about that today. I'm like, oh, that's a good one. He said, but hey, the second one's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you, but I, I love myself. Even those that don't think we love ourselves, we love ourselves. We don't want anything bad to happen to ourselves. We make sure that we're protected ourselves. We make sure we're having a good time. We make sure that we're taking care. And the Bible says, the way you take care of yourself and the way you love yourself, you're to love everybody. Then they come back and try to trip them. They say, well, who's, who's your neighbor? The guy next door? And I'm not going to get into it today, but that's where Jesus got into the Good Samaritan story. They said, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> when you first hear this, it sounds so simple. But we see neighbor and we think someone who's just like us or acts just like us. I've never had a neighbor that I didn't get along with until I moved to downtown Canton. Now I have the neighbor that I affectionately call the neighbor from hell. I'm going to be honest with you. They say confession is good for the soul, it's bad for the ego. I'm not saying this is pastor-like, and I'm not saying you should be like me. I can't stand him. Hate is a strong word, so I don't want to say I hate him. But I probably wouldn't pee on him if he was on fire. I dislike him. When I see him, I start to get angry. I just don't trust him. I think he's rude. I think he's inconsiderate. I become that ochre mudge like his yard's a mess. You know, he owns an inflatable company, so we always have inflatables in the front yard, which is always awesome. He um, then bought a limo, so we always have a limo in the front yard that he never drives. It's got grass growing all around it. He's always got music blaring all times. 
I have nothing against Spanish-speaking people, but, man, there's only so many times you can hear the Titanic theme song in Spanish. Am I lying? All the time. He loves him some Titanic, Celine Dion, the Spanish version, to the point that it shakes our house. He's got this shed. When I tell you it's a shed that looks like it's about, like if you pushed it, it would fall over. It literally leans this way. Has no garage door on the shed. And now he has put a hot tub in the shed (laughs) with a flat screen television, 60-inch television. How the shed holds up the television, I have no clue. And he sits in this hot tub for hours watching Spanish soap operas. You can hear them. Then we showed up at our house about two months ago, and Christine's like, oh, look, he's got a lawn chair outside. And I'm like, that's not a lawn chair. It's a hospital bed. So now there's a hospital bed in the front yard that he told code enforcement he's required to lay in three hours a day. He's never talked to my wife except for the one time he knew I was going out of town because he saw me leaving with a camper and he got real weird with her at night. I told him I would shoot him and kill him. Just being honest with you. And he talks to our kids all the time, but he won't talk to us. He's just a weird dude. So I always thought loving your neighbor is easy until you live next to the person that I live next to. So I struggle with this verse. (laughs) I try to justify my actions. Does anybody here try to justify their sin? I try to justify my actions. Hey, Jesus had to walk the earth. I get it. He was like you. He didn't live next to Mario. Jesus didn't wake up every day and have to listen to Spanish music blaring. He didn't have to freaking, oh, and then he puts his dog on a runner and leaves it out all night. The dog whines all night and all this stuff. And it, 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 I'm like, Jesus didn't do all that. Jesus didn't have a limo next door. He walked everywhere. So I justify the fact that I can't stand him. I, I tell myself, Jesus had to deal with this idiot because Jesus might have sinned had he had to deal with this guy. But you know that's the awesome thing about Jesus? He came to earth. And he lived on earth just like you and I. And he dealt with the same issues that we dealt with. He had friends turn on him. He had people falsely accuse him. The religious leaders of the day hated him. And yet he says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's amazing. I'm wrong when it comes to my neighbor. Here's what I've also learned. I don't have to like somebody to love somebody. I don't have to like the actions of my neighbor. No matter what, I'm never going to consider him an unrude person. I'm never going to be cool with the fact that he has a hospital bed in his front yard. I'm never going to be okay with the fact that he has a limo in his front yard. When we were trying to sell our house, I was like, good Lord, how are we ever going to sell our house with this guy next door? But I went as far as to say, I hate him. I went as far as to say, I can't stand him. And my job's to love him, no matter how unlovable he is. See, it sounds easy to say amen to this verse, but the reality is, we're to love people even if they don't believe like us, act like us, see the worldview like us. Isn't it funny how we always think people make stupid decisions? 
because they don't make decisions we'd make. And I was thinking about this. How did Jesus love unlovable people? And I think Jesus understood two very important principles. First of all, I think he understood this. Everyone is created in God's image. Everyone is created in God's image. Even when your neighbor has a limo in the front yard, inflatables in the yard, and a hot tub and a shed that's about to fall down. He was created in the image of God. This is so vital to understand. If we're worthy of love, if we are worthy of love, everyone is worthy of love because God created us. Those that hate God, God created them. Those who don't believe like us, God created them. Those who have different political views than you, God created them. Those who have different social and moral convictions than you do, God created them. Those that you think don't have their act together, God created them. That addict that keeps relapsing and relapsing and relapsing, you're like, ah, they've had 100,000 chances, God created them. God doesn't make junk. God doesn't make mistakes. The Bible says this, I praise you because I am fearfully, I am wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that well. Every person who's ever taken a breath, the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, created that person. They're made in the image of God. There's nobody, do not miss this, there is nobody beyond the love of God. We love to say there is. We love to say there's no hope. And people, I, uh, people don't change. They might not, but God can change them. And if he can't change them, he's not a very big God. God created us. He formed us. He says he has the hairs on our head numbered. He said if he feeds in the, the birds of the field and he clothes the lilies, how much more does he love us? Every person, that person at the grocery store who drives you crazy, that waitress who was rude, that person who cut you off in traffic, that co-worker that you can't stand, at the end of the day, God created them and they are worthy of God's love. And here's the deal, the way you, this is something that I've had to learn, the way you view that person there's probably someone who views you the same way. I'm in Carsville, Georgia yesterday, and I go Facebook Live because I put on festivals. And I'm like, get down to the festival, blah, 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 yay, you know, hype man. And someone makes a comment. Was on my way to the festival until I realized Gary Lamb has something to do with this. He can burn in hell. Never seen the guy's name in my life. Clicked on his Facebook link. Not friends with him. Facebook stalked him. Blew his picture up. I have never seen this. Now, somewhere along the, the road in my 42 years, ugh, I've met this person, obviously. I didn't recognize him. Don't know him. They lived in Taylor. I don't even know where Taylorsville, Georgia is. I think it's up around Cartersville or something. I looked, pictures of his wife. I was like, do I know her? Like, do, like, do I? I don't know the person. But here's the deal. 
somewhere along the way, that person knows me. And somewhere along the way, I fully accept this, I've done something to him or someone he loved or someone he knew or he's heard something about me that he didn't approve of. And so the way I view unlovable people, he viewed me as unlovable. See, it's always easy to look at other people and realize there's people that look at us the same way. But that guy's created the image of God. I'm created the image of God. Everybody knows somebody who's unlovable, and everyone here is unlovable at some time or another, and we're still to love people. And that brings me to the second point. Because of sin, we're all unlovable. Because of sin, every single person here at one time or another is unlovable. The Bible says, for all have sinned. That word all is a very deep word in the original language. It means all. That means nobody here is exempt. Those of you who think you got it all together and you think you're so perfect, and you know the problem with everyone else, the Bible says for all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Everybody here is screwed up. Everyone here is messed up. There's not a person here, pastor included, that doesn't fall short of God's standard because God's standard is perfection. And you ain't perfect, and neither am I. It's easy to say, well, they're unlovable. Because you know what I was thinking about? I bet Mario has a different side to our story. He thinks I'm the rude neighbor. He thinks I'm the guy that three weeks ago was ready to fight him in my boxer shorts because his dog ran in my yard. And at 12 o'clock at night, I'm screaming at him. He's screaming at me, and we're getting redneck out there like we own Canton, Georgia. He's the guy who probably thinks, man, I don't even know these people. The second day they moved in their house, they took their dogs for a walk. My dog ran out, and they weren't even nice and said, hey, can you move your dog? They started screaming at him because that's what we did. He probably thinks I'm the guy that instead of ever going to him and saying, hey, could you do this, this, and this, I call the police on him nonstop. He probably thinks I'm the guy that the time he said something to my wife, I did walk over to him and let him know I would kill him if he ever did it again. Could I handle it better? Probably. He probably thinks I'm the guy, and you can't control what your father-in-law does. but had your father-in-law go visit him. And while he was talking to him, maybe be caring, I don't know, I'm just saying, didn't threaten him, but just let him know that our daughter goes to bed at 8 o'clock. If there's not loud music after 8, there'll be no problem. He probably thinks that I'm the guy that walks out every time he's doing something that I deem white trash. I'm like, snap, 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 hate this guy. It's a different side of the story. Ain't that amazing? My side of the story is that he's rude and inconsiderate. His side of the story is, man, I lived here for years with no trouble until these white honkies moved in. <laughs> to him, I'm unlovable. Because of sin, we're all unlovable. What we tend to do is we tend to, to judge or determine whether or not we like people 
based on if they sin like we do or not. I used to know this person that was an insane, raging alcoholic. Had lost almost everything due to alcoholism. Couldn't get through the day without getting drunk. But this person would talk about drug addicts like they were scum of the earth. Like, like the biggest scum. I'm not a drug addict. Drug addict. And I'm thinking, you can't get through breakfast literally without drinking. And but I, you judge these people. We tend to judge people if they sin different than us. If they sin like us, we're down with them. But they do something we don't like based on our moral code. Hey, we're not, but, but we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all screwed up. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short. There's not a person in this room who at one time or another is not unlovable. And here's the funny thing. When we're unlovable... We want forgiveness. When we're unlovable, we want people to move on from it. We want people to let it go, but we don't do it to other people. We are the epitome of hypocrites. We're to love the unlovable. And you know what I found out? It's really not hard. Seems like it's hard, but it's not. I've given you the reasons we should. Because everyone's creating God's image because of sin, we're all unlovable. But how do we do it? Sounds good, Gary. How do we do it? We just model the life of Jesus. First thing we got to learn to do is we got to learn to see people and not problems. I think Jesus was the master of this. He saw people and not problems. Soon afterwards, Jesus went into a town and the disciples and a large crowd went along with them. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. So Jesus is leaving with his crowd. Another crowd's coming against him with a dead person on the way to a funeral. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So here's a lady. Her only son's died. She's a widow. Her husband has died. And a large crowd from the town was with her. They used to, the whole town would go out during funerals during this time. So they're going out to bury her outside the town. Jesus is coming into town with his crowd of people. When the Lord saw her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. He said, don't cry. Then went up and touched the bear where they were carrying him, and the bear stood still. He said, young man, I said, you get up. The dead man was set up, and he began to walk, and Jesus gave him back his, to his mother. Jesus is walking into town. They're walking out of town. They're in mourning. It had been real easy for a crowd to pass each other. I passed hundreds of hundreds of people yesterday and never noticed them. Jesus saw the mother. He saw her pain, and he saw her hurt, and he saw how upset she was. And when Jesus saw her, he was moved with compassion, and he brought her son back to life. We've got to see people and not problems. We need to realize that everybody is somebody, somebody. That waitress, she's got a mother somewhere praying for her. That guy that cuts you off in traffic has got a wife somewhere 
who loves him. Everybody is somebody to somebody else, and they're people, and we got to start seeing people instead of problem. We need to quit calling people addicts and start calling them people. We need to quit calling people liars and see them as people. We need to quit calling people drunks and see them as people and fornicators or homosexuals or black or white or rich or poor or Republican or Democrat. At the end of the day, we all bleed and we're all people, but we see problems. And when you allow your problems to stop seeing people, you can't love. We're so busy with our life and the tyranny of our urgent, we don't care about anybody else's issues. We care about us because we're selfish. It just comes naturally. But if you're going to love the unlovable, you've got to see people. It's easy to see someone out here in the woods and they're nasty and they're dirty and they're automatically like, you know what, I don't trust them and they're this and this and that. Maybe they just fell on hard times. So many of us could be in that boat. So many of us are one paycheck away from being right out there in that situation. But we got all the answers instead of seeing them for people. Second thing, we're getting out of here today. We serve people. We serve people regardless of whether they deserve it. We serve people because you know the way you love is by serving. Love is an action word. You can say you love all day long. It don't mean crap. Show me you love me. Churches all over this country, there ain't a church in this city that won't say they love the unlovable. But if they were on trial for loving the unlovable, would they be found guilty? Would there be enough evidence in their walk in their actions to prove that they truly loved the unlovable i think in most cases we do find the answer to that is no we're to love people and we're to serve people let me make this so clear to you you serve people regardless of whether they deserve it because there's been times in our life we didn't deserve it and people served us we forget when we were down and out. We forget when we were screwed up. We forget when we were at the end of our rope. We forget when we didn't have two pennies to rub together. We forget when we were strung out in our addiction. We forget when our marriage was falling apart. We forget when our children were going through hell. But we sit back and judge everyone out from our high perch, and we forget we used to be one on the ground looking up. We serve people regardless of whether they deserve it. I don't want to give out Thanksgiving turkeys because that family over here took four of them. Who cares who cares turkey costs five bucks good lord and the ones who gripe about it are the ones who didn't break a turkey to begin with mm. always kills me they're here every month to get clothes from the clothing pantry you act like you went out and bought those clothes Somebody was throwing them out. They brought them here. Thank God they show up every month and take them. Because if they didn't, we'd have them mound up 10 feet high. Shut up. Golly, you just gripe to gripe. Jesus didn't do that. Look what he did. It was just before the Passover festival. This is it's deep. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. 
He knew his time was up. Having loved its own who were the world, he loved them to the end. That evening, the evening meal was in progress. The evening meal was already in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, scared to betray Jesus. So Jesus is sitting here eating dinner with someone the devil had already prompted to betray him. I heard an old preacher one time, he said, man, always someone in your life ready to betray you, and chances are real good they're close enough to break bread with you. Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill. He took off his outer clothing. They'd worn out a coat over their robe. Wrapped a towel around his waist. Poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. Drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Peter was at that table. Who a couple of days later would deny him three times. Judas was at that table who had already been prompted to betray him. But Jesus got down on his feet. You see, you know, there was no greater act of submission this time because, again, they wore sandals everywhere. There was dirt roads. They would arrive from traveling, and before they would eat, the masters of the home would get down their knees. It was just a humbling act where they would wash their feet and clean their feet. And the king of kings got on his feet. He's the king of kings. He's the savior. They should have been washing his feet. But he got on his knees and he washed their feet. Put that point back up, Xander. Please, sir. You serve people regardless of whether they deserve it. Here's the deal. If they're taking advantage of something, they'll answer to God for it. We answer to God on whether we love or not. That's a big issue here at Action Church. We love to hoop and holler. We serve and we just, but you only want us to serve who you want us to serve. I can't tell you how many times I've heard all these Spanish people, they never end up at church. We don't serve people to get them into our church. Newsflash for you. We serve people because we love people. And you can't love people if you aren't willing to serve them. You show me a marriage where a spouse doesn't serve the other spouse, and I'll show you a loveless marriage. Love is all about serving each other. And it's hard. It's hard because our human flesh takes over. But we're to serve people whether they deserve it or not. You think I deserve some of the love I've gotten over the years? I sat back yesterday and I got home and Christine was out and so I got home and I was in the shower and I'm a reflector person. I reflect back over the day a lot. That's just kind of how my mind works. And so I, I pick up on things that happen throughout the day that maybe in the moment I didn't think about. And my wife, I had to stay late so my wife went off with a bunch of friends. And I was thinking about her being off with these friends. And every person she was off with took their Saturday. Some of them didn't even agree to volunteer. <laughs> they just showed up at the party. 
and got put to work. And they worked gates, and they worked bars, and they worked trash cans. All because they loved me. They didn't get anything in return. Not one time throughout the day did I walk by and think, not that they expected, I was busy. I didn't deserve any of it. But they did it. Then I began to think about each individual. And I was like, did they owe me something? Have I ever helped them do something? And I was like, no, I've never helped that person do anything. Huh? No, never helped. Now, I would. But I never had. I didn't deserve their help yesterday. They just loved me enough to allow me to do what I'm trying to make provide for my family and what I enjoy doing, that they served. That's powerful. When you learn to serve people who don't deserve it, it's amazing what God does in your life. The most fulfilled people in the world are those who give their life to meeting the needs of others. Our Savior got on his knees and washed the disciples' feet, including the one that was about to betray him. That's powerful. It's hard to serve and not love people. Matter of fact, I've learned that if I just serve people, it's amazing how my love for those people begins to grow. I'm done right here. Third way we go about it is we love how we want to be loved. What if we started treating people how we wanted to be treated? Love your neighbor as yourself. So what that's saying is, is love your friend how you'd want to be loved. You know what's funny about me is I'm a loyalty person. I want people to be loyal to me, and I want people to have my back, and I want people to do this. Then I have to ask myself, do I do the same thing to them? Do I have their back? Am I loyal to them? We should love people how we want to be loved. Part of being a Christ follower, if you're going to live in the life of Jesus, is you've got to learn to love the unlovable. You've got to learn to do it. And to do that, you've got to see people and not problems. You've got to serve whether they deserve it or not. And then you just got to love the way you want to be loved. Not the deepest message in the world, but I'm telling you a life-changing message. Because if this church, with this record-breaking small crowd today, if this small crowd today learned these principles, hear me out what I'm about to tell you. If this small crowd today learned these principles, within six months, those curtains would be down, This whole place would be filled with chairs and it would be packed every Sunday because we loved people to Jesus. We didn't guilt them to Jesus. We didn't beat them to Jesus. We didn't drag them to Jesus. We loved them to Jesus. We live in a world that wants to be loved and they're looking for something different. The world beats them up enough. The church ought to love them.